just a few verses here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when you think about what we talked about at the children's sermon, that uh, Jesus doesn't, just doesn't want to change the way you act. He wants to change the way you think. And that's kind of what he's doing here in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to think differently and therefore act differently. Have, uh, I guess we could say, march to a different drummer, him, him being the drummer. Um, and remember, this is the time, yes, we know from Revelation 5 and other places, this is the Lion of Judah, this is the Lamb that was slain. Well, this is before that. They're still, try, they're still trying to figure out who this guy is. They know he speaks as one with authority, and they like that. Uh, he, as we talked about last week, he doesn't just say, this guy said, and this guy said, or even it is written, although he says that, he says, I say to you. He has authority, first person authority, and if your Bible's like mine, this is... Uh, the second most, and I think this is an adjective, red lettery portion of the Bible. Uh, the first is the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 17. So there's a lot of red letters in here, not a lot of back and forth. This is why they call it a sermon, although you're welcome to catcall if you want. Uh, my, letter, my words aren't red letter, so these are. Uh, we're going to be bopping back and forth some uh, here uh, from different... Uh, text to, to kind of look at what he's, because he is going back into the Old Testament and trying to help us understand it a little bit. So verse 38, chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Mosaic law was both a moral code and a civil law, and it's a little different. We have to remember, we're not under that jurisdiction. We'll talk about this later. We're in a new covenant. Uh, we don't, it's not a nation of people and not a theocracy, they call it, where you have God at the head and the people who are at the head of the politics are also the head of the church or the head of the religion. That's not what we have. That's what they had. So you have to separate these out a little bit. You've got moral law. This is what you're supposed to do. And then you have what's called civil law, which is how you apply those things. And you see an example of this in Exodus 21. And I wanted to hit this one for a couple of reasons, but, and you're welcome to, to turn to it if you want. Exodus 21, 22. Uh, this is an example of taking moral law and applying it. Now, we might not apply it the same way because we might be in a different circumstance, but it shows you wisdom. Uh, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, which, if you didn't know, is not a good idea, um, so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's the whole whole thing of the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. It just keeps, you know, make the punishment fit the crime. But what's kind of cool here, in my opinion, uh, is that notice this, that the value of the unborn child is given in this text. If the child comes out and there's no harm, then, as they say in basketball, no harm, no foul. You all know. You know it's almost March Madness. I know you guys are excited. Yeah. But luck, if there is harm, and it's implied to, to the baby, obviously. So, you know, if you want to use this 
go ahead. It's how you apply the moral law. Obviously, this text sees the unborn baby as an image bearer that is, has just as much intrinsic quality as a baby that's born. So, again, you learn these things as you go through. There's plenty of texts that can help us with that. But this is called in this nice Latin term, lex talionos. Doesn't that sound cool? Doesn't it make me sound smart? At least it's nice to sound smart, whether you're not or are not. But lex talionis, it's the principle of exact retribution, that the penalty fit crime. Clearly an instruction for the judges of Israel. So if you move over to Deuteronomy 19.16, you get very similar things. Deuteronomy, this big, long sermon from Moses, gives us some of that too. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to this dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in the office in those days. So see, the priests were also the judges at the time. It's a theocracy. We don't have that. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness, as it accuses his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. You shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. You getting the just here? Um, this is what's here. So this was clearly what they were supposed to do. But at Lux, and like the divorce laws in the Old Testament, Lex Talionis was instituted to curb evil because of the hardness of men's hearts. You don't need a law if everybody is doing the right thing, right? You need laws because... Men and women are sometimes breakers and evil of uh, are evil in their actions, and so that's why you have it. So what's the purpose of the principle? Why do we have this? Well, to lay the foundation for justice, specify the punishment which a wrongdoer deserved, and to limit the compensation to an exact equivalent and no more. You know, try to keep revenge out of the system. That's what's going on. And you get a lot, of, you can read a lot of this stuff. You know, and sometimes people think this is boring. I don't know what's wrong with them, you know, um, you go through and they kind of tell you, you know, if your ox gets gored. And it, it, it's just all using this to make sense, you know. Well, give him another ox, you know. Do what you can to pay the penalty. So there's a double effect. You define justice and you restrain revenge. You're not supposed to take revenge on the person. Just get back what you had. So I guess, I don't know. I just thought of that. But, you know, I don't know if there were any punitive damages back then. <laughs> I don't know. But that could still be justice, I think. So... We'll just leave that set there. So by the time of Jesus, literal retaliation had mostly been replaced by monetary penalties, and that's kind of where we are now. Um, you don't have to give your car to somebody. Usually just the insurance just gives them money, right? That's kind of the way it was back then. So apparently what happened here, and this is in the background, the Pharisees had extended the principle of just retribution from the law courts, where it belonged, to the realm of personal relationships, where it does not. Because remember, who is the audience here? If you go back into, into, into verse 1 of this, the crowds are there, but then Jesus sets down is what you did when you, I was thinking about doing that someday. That's what you do when you preach back then. Of course, if it was the wrong chair, I'd be sleeping with you probably, so we don't want that. He sets down, he's going to preach, and then the, the, his disciples is all it says. It, at that point, only four have been called that we know of in Matthew, but, but people who are his followers and want to follow him, this is who he's talking to. Do not be like them is the big part. We'll get that in chapter 6. And we even get it in Leviticus, you know, a little bit. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where that comes from. I love you. 
do this, don't seek revenge. So Jesus says, but I say to you, first person, red letter, it doesn't contradict the principle of retribution because it's in different spheres. He was aware that it rightly applied to law courts. He simply states that the principle does not apply to personal relationships, which is primarily what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And if we remember that, it's quite helpful. I mean, you think about that, and remember, the, I think I've told you this before, but I think any seminary does this, but my seminary, when we went in to do any type of biblical interpretation, there were the three principal rules of biblical interpretation. Context, context, and context. Who is he talking to? Who is he? Who does apply to? You have to know that. I, and that's where we get into trouble, and it looks like some of the leaders had gotten into trouble, taking something that was really for the masses and keeping a society going and making it about personal relationships. So what are personal relationships supposed to be based on? Well, we get this in the Bible a lot, you know. Aren't we supposed to love your neighbor as yourself? I think it's supposed to be based on love. We get this in 1 John 3.16. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. We just celebrated that in the communion. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, other believers. This is how believers are supposed to act to each other. Do not be like them. And it's, sometimes it sounds that way. I, in Christian, you see that in churches sometimes it's like, well, he did it to me. What are you, four? I mean, sorry if there's any four-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it, sure, he did. You know, but what does, how are we supposed to think about that? How, what are we supposed to do with that? Do not resist an evil person. Notice that. It's not just evil in the abstract. Resist evil. I have no trouble with resisting evil as long as it doesn't come in a person. Then it's harder. Because people can be annoying. People tell me that. I wonder why. We can be annoying, right? We can hurt each other. We can do things that are against and not thinking of the other person, but thinking of ourselves. But it's not evil in the abstract. And it's really not the evil one there. It's the man who wrongs you, the one who does the problem. You don't reconcile with general evil, right? You reconcile with people. And that's what this is about. And what he doesn't allow is retaliation. You know, and that's what these little many illustrations are showing us, which we'll get into those a little bit. So he's also fencing in the law. If you remember the fencing in the law, if you were here, the, the idea that Jesus is doing this really well, this idea that you put a fence around the actual sin, and so you're outside in kind of the temptation area, and if you can get it at the temptation level, you never even get to the sin. It's very smart, very wise. You know, we had that earlier. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because if you get it there, you're not if you don't have a hand, you won't steal anything, is his idea. And that's obviously metaphoric to some extent. Um, hopefully it doesn't go that far. So remember back in chapter, or, or in verses 21 through 30, he talked about fencing in murder by focusing on its origin, anger. You know, if you don't get angry with your brother, if you, if you hit that and you get that in the Old Testament and in the New as a proverb, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You know, get this taken care of. We'll get this later. You know, go to the if you go to the altar and there's someone you have someone against, you go reconcile first before you even go worship because it's too important. Fence that in because you know what happens. We start thinking, and we start thinking the wrong things, don't we? 
the biggest problem with anger is we start thinking we know the other person's motive. I know this never happens in marriages, but I've heard. In some relationships, somebody will say something, and the person will take it in a way, well, they must have... They must, they, must not, they must really have it in for me or something like that. So we have to be careful. I don't know people's motives. Jesus did. He can look inside their heart, assume good motives, fence in that anger, you know, try to, so you don't get to the point where something worse happens. You know, it's not bad to take a walk sometimes, folks, you know, even in the winter, whatever it takes. He also fences in adultery by focusing on its origin, lust. You get it at the lust level, Outside the fan, you know, you won't get to that. You won't get to the next level. And what's he doing? Anger, lust, they're emotions, but they're also thoughts, aren't they? He's trying to change how we think. You know, think of, I didn't put it in here, but Romans 12, you know. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's the idea of thinking like Jesus. And that's a good prayer. Every morning, every night. Heck, you can even do it in the afternoon. Lord, help me think like you want me to think. And maybe even help me feel the way you want me to feel. Because emotions can get in the way sometimes too. God made emotions. They're good if they're used in the right way. So here he fences in retaliation by encouraging its opposite. So it's a little different. Not only is he saying don't get in there, don't do this retaliation, don't take revenge. Do the opposite. Show a mercy and grace. And you're all looking here and say, it must be easy for the pastor. It's like, well, this is just as hard for me as it is for you. I'm still trying to figure out the fence. But think about that. I've said this before. You're all in worship, and thanks for being here, and you get a point for it. Uh, some of you are up to a lot of points. Now we can just figure out what we can turn them in for. You know, me be in good shape. But you're here. Think about this. Just what The probability of you sinning right now is a lot lower than if you weren't here. Isn't that kind of cool? Another good reason to come to worship and Bible study and life group. When we're around people doing the things that honors God, hey, at least you got that hour where you're doing good, right? And it helps us the more we can do that. So he, he says, he, if you think about the fence now, it's like, no, we're not going to go into the revenge area. In fact, we're going to run the other way. And he, he makes it even stronger and even further away. than It's not even justice he's saying. He's saying in personal relationships, give them grace. Well, they don't deserve it. Uh, that's the definition of grace or mercy. Mercy is undeserved kindness. If they deserve it, that's called wages. If they don't deserve it, it's called mercy. And how do I know when to give mercy and when to not? Might be good. Pray about Might be good to be around other Christians and look for wisdom and when to do it and when not to. So Jesus uses these, little f these four little mini illustrations here. He's saying, don't take revenge. It's a visible participation in the cross is what, you know, Jesus could have. We know that from the Bible. What could Jesus have done from the cross if he wanted to? He could have got off, right? Could he have wiped them all out? Yeah, it wouldn't have been hard. I should quit thinking of that, shouldn't I? I mean, you think about that, it's like, well, that would have been cool. That'd be a cool movie. <laughs> Would it have been a cool movie? It's not what he was there for. 
But you get in First Peter, Peter talks about this. For to this you have been called, and it's this Christ-like thing we were talking about in the children's. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And why? Well, this was a time that Jesus knew this was the right thing to do. There will be a time. You read Revelation 5 and on. There's going to be a time when Jesus comes and there's going to be justice. You ever think about that? First coming, grace. John 3.17, if you want to find it. I don't know if you knew that, but it's right after John 3.16. Right before John 3.18. But it's a good one to remember. It's, it tells us what he came for. He did not come to condemn the world but he came in that the order that the world might be saved. That's the first coming. The second coming is for justice. You don't want God's justice. That's what the table's all about. So he does turn the other cheek. We're going to hit that a little harder in a minute. The cloak thing. I don't know if you knew that, but in Roman times, a Roman centurion, and it started out, most laws do this, Started out, made sense. You got a Roman centurion. He's trying to protect the people. He's carrying a lot of stuff. And it's like, well, there's a guy here that's not doing anything. He can help me. Well, obviously, it got a little bit, human nature can make it worse. And they got a little belligerent sometimes. And I'm sure the Jewish folks did not like it, you know, where they would be. It's one thing to say, hey, you know, uh, Mr. Uh, Jewish person, could you perhaps please help me a little bit for about a mile? From what I've read, that's not the way the Roman soldiers usually asked. It was more like, dog, pick that up. <laughs> and so he's telling them, do it two miles, you know. You know, these are illustrations, you know. I, I think he's trying to, and, and the cloak, if somebody takes your cloak, give him your, your coat, give him your cloak also. It's not that we have to, he's not teaching this stuff, you just have to wait around for somebody to steal your coat or wait on the street corner for somebody to say that you've got to carry their stuff for a mile. That's not the point. The point is, where's your heart? Are you trying to, show them that you're Christ or you're trying to show them that it's all about you. And it's that he's showing that quiet strength of Christ-like care for others. It's kind of a show of meekness. We've had that earlier. That's what he wants us to do. But what did to do with this cheek thing? We always have trouble with the cheek thing, don't we? You know, smacking you on one cheek and you're supposed to turn the other. I will be the first one, and I know y'all probably thinking the same thing, to admit it's not my first thought. Somebody smacks me. My first thought is to smack them back. And harder. Well, what's he getting at here? Uh, why do I think that? I'm supposed to think like Jesus. You know, it's like, well, maybe I need to rethink things. But you've you got to start figuring out what's going on here. If you go to John 18, it's kind of an interesting, uh, this is Jesus in action. He's at the high priest, uh, and he's getting questioned. This is, uh, John has a pretty long uh, part of Jesus' passion here. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? You know, I was open. You guys have heard this. You obviously got me in here. You know what I said. 
When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. Huh. That sound familiar? <laughs> I wonder what that was like. I, one of the things, if you've been in a Bible study, and this is just, you're just lucky because you're not, you're not getting this anyway, even though you're not in a Bible study. One of the things that's kind of neat to do, at least for me, and if you could do it if you want, is if you're reading through the Gospels or any of the narratives in the Bible, think of yourself as a director in a movie. And how would, you, how would you do this scene? I mean, would you have the guy come up and kind of go, like that? Or do you want to, I mean, is Jesus like down? Is there blood coming out of his mouth? I mean, how hard did he get hit? Which one do you think it is? I bet he smacked him pretty good in my movie. You have to do your own movie. I can't help you with that. But it just, it makes it three-dimensional. It's kind of like, how would this look? Uh, so he gets smacked because he said, you heard it. You know, he, they must, he must have taken that. He says, is, is that how you answer the high priest? He may, may, takes Jesus as kind of being belligerent about this. And this is the point in 23. Jesus answered him, if, I, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So did Jesus just stay silent there? You know, he didn't. Did he smack him back? Why do you think Jesus didn't smack him back? I got a really good answer. Most likely his hands were bound. And after he did that ninja thing, he had no recourse, right? So, I mean, it, it, I don't know, but he, does he stand up for himself a little bit here? It gives us just a little bit more on this text. You know, what, what, what's going on here? Can we... Are we saying that we're supposed to just be punching bags? Is that what this turn the other cheek thing is? I don't think so. Given this, he did stand up for himself. Now, I'm not saying if Jesus wouldn't have been bound, he would have smacked him. That's not the point. But he did stand up for himself. He did say, you know, in so many words, you know, why did you strike me? You had no right to do that. He did stand up for himself. He certainly stood up for other people. And then we go back to context, context, context. What is, a, what is this slap that we have here? We have an, a, a kind of a slap that we see this back in, in ancient Palestinian times. This is a little different than what we normally would think. You know, I don't know. You don't go around slapping people much here, do you? Slapping is kind of a no-no here. But back then, it was, it was, it, this is a backhanded slap because it says... If someone slaps you on the right cheek, you've got to do that with the left hand, backhanded. It's probably a backhanded slap. It's an insult is what this is. You see this in uh, medieval times, you know, when they take their glove off and then they, you know. Of course, you don't want to brick in the thing, and that really makes it worse. But, but it's the idea, it's, it's an insult. It's a, it's a, hey, you want to fight type of thing. And so... What he's saying is don't return insult for insult. That's in the Old Testament. And who is this between again? Well, primarily it's between believers, but even if it's a non-believer, don't be like them. Always, you know? What do I care what people think if they insult you if you don't really even, if you know they're wrong? Is it worth your time? You know, Proverbs 26, I love it, verses 3 and 4. The first verse says, answer a fool in his folly, or he will become 
foolish in his own eyes. So we're supposed to answer a fool. That's kind of what Jesus did here. The next verse says, do not answer a fool in his folly, or you will become foolish like him. Well, how do I know which one? It's that big W word, right? Wisdom. When is it time to say something? When is it not? Here he's talking about retaliation. Somebody slap gives you an insult, so you beat them up and all their kids. That would be a no-no. But even returning it is what he's saying. Because what would happen? Let's go back to the fence. You get insulted. And then you insult. And then they insult back and you insult a little bit better. And I found out I'm really, really, really good at being sarcastic. As far as you know. You can really, you can win an argument can lose a friend. You can really demean somebody publicly. But is that what you should be doing? So this comes down to, are we supposed to take this as a self-defense thing, that we're supposed to walk around and just let people beat us up? Let's look at one more verse here. Uh, Luke 22, this is before they are, before the Garden of Gethsemane. It's kind of an interesting verse, and, and I'm not trying to take too much out of it, but we'll just read it. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered among the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And then they head off for the garden. What do you do with that? You know, I've heard people say this was a knife that they could make the meal out of. It's like, well, that's not... I. It's probably a short sword, but what are these swords for? Probably for defense. Because we're talking about defense. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but defense, this is for defense. You know, even we have a, a department in our government called the Department of the Defense, not the offense, you know, uh, because it's supposed to be to defend people. It looks like he's saying to defend. Of course, then what happens when they're in the garden? Peter must have had one of those swords. What did he do with it? He whopped off that guy's ear. And then people say, well, see, he wasn't supposed to have the sword. Well, what's the problem with using the sword there? Well, first of all, he's told not to use it by Jesus. And second of all, this is a kangaroo court to some extent, but this is the authorities. You know, you're not supposed to, let's do this the right way. So he used it wrong. But again, I, I think this is teaching us that the personal self-defense is not prohibited by, as long as it's God-honoring and used with caution. I think we can do that. I really, and people will disagree. There are pacifists, we'll look at a few. Um, good for them. And maybe, maybe they're right. I don't know. The way I read this is it's okay to defend yourself as long as you're not taking revenge. And again, back to the backhanded slap, this is more about insult than it is about the actual striking. Because the principle, again, is love, right? And the only limit to a Christian's generosity is the limit that love itself imposes. Because we think love just means accepting everything, just listening to everything. Well, I don't know if you knew it, that Peter, even though he was a great apostle and had the Holy Spirit and was, uh, did some wonderful things and wrote, two really cool books, he kind of was hypocritical one time, and Paul calls him on it out of love. 
when Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him, Paul says, to his face because he stood condemned. Well, why? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. Remember Peter had that sheet vision thing about Cornelius and he can go and eat all the shellfish and poured pork he wanted. Because that's, that's an old covenant law. Don't worry about that now. The Gentiles are grafted in. Well, apparently he kind of stepped back from that. And when people came, he's like, oh, I'm not doing that. I don't want anybody to know. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, the people who thought you had to be Jewish before you could become Christian. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So is this loving by Paul to call him on this? I think it is. Sometimes you have to show that. What I'm showing is meekness and following what Jesus wants. doesn't mean to back down and, and just accept everything. There are things in life we need to tell people about because we are supposed to be honoring God in our actions. If it's not, it's not loving to tell them it is okay with God when we know it's not. How is that loving? It's harder because <laughs> they may not like us. But do not be like them as we keep getting told here. So Christ's purpose here was to forbid revenge, not encourage injustice, dishonesty, or vice. So I think we see this in the Old Testament, and I think Jesus is saying this in the New. Sometimes protecting the innocent is the loving thing to do. I hope this does not happen to you, but if you leave this place and go to Denison or Chiron or Omaha or wherever, and you're going down the street and you see a little girl being beat up by a man, I hope you do something and not just turn the other cheek. Which would be more loving? <laughs> what would wisdom tell you? We got to be careful we don't take these things too far. Because it, what it's about, it's not about following rules, it's about personal relationships. And in that case, who should be protected you know, I think we have to use wisdom here. And yes, always with caution because we can easily morph in to Rambo really quick and we don't want that, right? This makes sense out of it. Now, and Gandhi, who did some, said some good things, they had the absolute prohibition in the use of all force. Uh, we call this pacifism. And, and there are some very good Christians that believe this. Um, and... I always think, you know, when you do things like this and you do theology, you think, you know, they may be right and I might be wrong, but I don't know if you figured this out. I think I'm right. Wouldn't it be silly to preach something you thought was wrong? Um, it's admirable, but it's, it's unrealistic. And even is it biblical? You look at Romans 13, which tells us about the state. The governing authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. That's why he was put there. That's why the governing authority is there is to restrain evil and to honor good. So Luther tried to deal with this in what he called the two kingdoms. He took, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and to what is God, God's. He says, don't separate the two. And I think this is pretty smart, but I think the problem with that is he probably went a little too far. We can't separate it that way, can we? We live in both kingdoms, don't we? We live in the kingdom of the personal relationship we have through Christ in the church, and we live in the kingdom for us, uh, the Republic of America, where there are certain things. The ruler of the kingdom or the republic has a certain eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In our relationships, it should be done by love first, but using wisdom. So I think we have to think about that. If the ruler 
allows all evil to go, what happens? We've got a problem. And if the church acts like the state, we've got a problem too, because that's not who we're supposed to follow. So, and even the state sometimes, you can throw yourself on the mercy of the court. So again, wisdom again. And in church, sometimes love has expressed itself in discipline. And we talked about that when we went through forgiveness and reconciliation a few months ago. Matthew 18 gives us that. So Jesus was not prohibiting the law of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. And think about the other person. The eye for an eye is great for court. It's not good for personal relationships. Think about it this way. We're supposed to be Christ-like, right? Do you want Jesus giving you what you deserve? Do you want to stand before the throne of God and Jesus open the book? You can read Revelation 20 at the end if you want to see this. And have him judge us by our actions. And give us what eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. No, we want grace. We want him to cover our sins. Well, that's the way we're supposed to act with each other, right? That's what he's trying to talk about here. Don't turn each other into a punching bag. Don't be silly about this. Just use wisdom. Because in personal relationships, it's the law of love that prevails. And how do we know what love looks like? Well, I think you just let Jesus take you by the hand and show you. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this retaliation text that we're supposed to not return evil for evil, that we're supposed to treat people like we really care about them and not look for revenge. I just uh, pray for each one of us. There's things in our lives that can always make us angry, can always make us uh, think that uh, justice isn't happening. But may we remember that you give us grace, not justice. Uh, may in our hearts we want to do the same for those that, uh, especially those that we care about and follow you, but for everyone to show the love of Christ which is a willful, centered-on-you care that puts the other person in you first. May we do that always. Amen.